Okay, so welcome to our second day of celebration of this um, year of shelter in place, as well as so many other amazing challenges in the world. And I thought we would just begin today with uh, the sitting. So um, feel free to settle in, finding a posture that's upright and also relaxed. Maybe taking a couple of long, slow, deep breaths so that you really fill the chest area and maybe into the belly and just letting the air out naturally and softening the body on the exhale. Just for this time, all you need to do is be sitting. So finding some ease in the body. Softening the eyes and the eye sockets. The jaw, neck. Releasing the shoulders. Softening the chest area and the belly. And all the way down into the legs and even the feet. Just connecting with the body. And also sensing the mind, any thoughts or emotions. And treating them like tensions in the body. So things to notice, to ease if possible. And if not, then just being fine with that. Sitting with the aim of finding some degree of stillness. Even in the midst of a busy day. For this moment, the mind and body can be relatively still.
And as we orient more toward the stillness in the body, in the mind, we see that anything that isn't still is not something wrong or you know, the part that I need to make more still. It's actually that the stillness is there anyway and any movement can be seen because of the stillness. Orienting towards stillness is what allows us to observe the profound quality of impermanence and change. And orienting toward the stillness gives us a quiet frame from which to rest with all this flow. Letting the mind and heart be like a river that simply flows past our still awareness which is unperturbed, unruffled by anything that's changing. And to any degree that there is some amount of peace in the mind, a sense of okayness with the flow, noticing that. When we have a reference point in the body, in the mind, it can be a seed for equanimity with what is changing.
Sometimes it's pleasant in the body or the mind. Sometimes it's unpleasant. There isn't a body in the world that doesn't have some pain in it. Of course, the mind can also produce various painful emotions and thoughts. But equanimity can hold these various pleasant, unpleasant, changing experiences. Okay, so um, we're currently, I've reminded us several times now, in the midst of a global pandemic. <laughs> and it came, when it came upon us, maybe a, a bit more than a year ago now, um, things began to change kind of suddenly. We had this order to shelter in place. And it might be that we had never experienced anything quite like that, that changed our whole life routine. Or maybe we had, actually, in some other context. Um, the body is quite frail and unpredictable. Uh, at any time, uh, we could get sick, not necessarily with COVID, but with anything, and have to cancel everything we were doing for the next few days. Or we could get injured and not be able to do our usual level of activity for weeks or even months. That's kind of normal. Um, just this morning, I had a, a fairly extensive dental procedure and my um, one side of my mouth is still numb. So it sounds to me like my voice has a little bit of, I, I, I can't enunciate as well as I want to. Um, I don't know if you can notice or not, but it certainly is obvious to me. Um, so, you know, teeth don't last forever either. So this, you know, this body is like falling apart as we're trying to use it, right? And then of course, you know, even more. So we are all subject to death and various irreversible changes also that can't be solved with a dental procedure. I used to volunteer as a spiritual caregiver in a hospital and all the time, you know, I was going from room to room talking with, <clears throat> with people who were there and, you know, all the time I encountered people who uh, were shocked that their lives had been 
uh, change. <laughs> they weren't planning <laughs> to, to come. Most people are not planning to come to the hospital. And so, you know, they were um, in various degrees of disorientation or shock or outrage that their life had been changed very suddenly. And in some cases, irreversibly, you know, that was going to be a, they were going to not go on in the same way. So um, it's disorienting. And I think about how one factor in whether or not a person develops PTSD, um, what's currently called post-traumatic st stress disorder, uh, is whether or not, one factor in that is whether or not they have a worldview that can accommodate the disruption that they've been through. That turns out to be one of the factors among many. But um, so that makes sense. Um, so we can be grateful, I think, that Buddhist teachings look directly at impermanence as one of the, and suffering, of course, as the some of the major teachings. And you know, this is not depressing. This is actually building resilience in our mind that we can look at those things. And of course, another big part of the Buddhist teachings is to cultivate some kind of resilience in the face of change. You know, whether it's when we're sitting and you know there's things arising and we have to sit with that or in our regular life when things happen in our job and our relationships and, and other things. So these things are kind of front and center in Buddhist practice, which doesn't always look so, you know, I don't know, um, glamorous <laughs> to, to do these things, just sit and pay attention. But actually what it's doing is it has a tremendous effect on the mind and its ability to handle what are truly inevitable things in life, like the frailty of the body and our eventual dissolution and death. So this is good. Um, as the Buddha might gently remind us, all conditioned things are subject to change. Now that was, it doesn't sound that exciting in a sort of a dry form like that, but is there anything in your experience that hasn't changed somehow in the course of your life? So, you know, we're, we're meant to look at that. When the Buddha was dying, even the Buddha died, uh, so there's not much hope for us. Um, even the Buddha died, and when he was dying, his, you know, his final words were, uh, all conditioned things are subject to decay, strive on with diligence. So he, he pointed you know, right to impermanence in his final moments as something that's really important for us to look at. So there's great wisdom in connecting with impermanence um, here at the relative level in our normal human lives. We can reflect on aging, illness, and death. These are some of the um, most powerful ways that we encounter this because they're things that we can't change with a little dental procedure. Um, aging, illness, and death are not really subject to that kind of control. You may remember from the quote that I read yesterday about why the Buddha, what the Buddha was seeking on his quest. He said, why should I subject to aging, illness, death, etc., sorrow, lamentation, etc., um, seek that which is also subject? You know, why, why should I not seek what is not subject to aging, illness, and death? I'm paraphrasing slightly. So aging, illness, and death were right there front and center of a concern for the Buddha in going on his quest for awakening. So, you know, these are important forces in human life. They're things that are common that unite all of us. 
regardless, no matter how different we are in other ways, we're bound together by that common destiny. If our body lives that long to, to get old. So I was reading that at least one in three Americans knows somebody who has died of COVID. Um, so that likely includes somebody here, it's possible. And so, you know, this is um, a real thing. Just in the last year, of course, among all the, there are all the, all the other causes of death also. So this simple reflection that this is everyone's fate, including our own, that's part is important, is profound. And, you know, even at the very human macroscopic um, non-ultimate level, uh, we can get a lot of wisdom out of those kinds of reflections. And then, of course, in Buddhist practice, we're encouraged, if we do meditation, we're encouraged to engage even more deeply with change. You know, we can notice the continual change in body sensations like we did during the sit. Body and the mind are never still. There's always stuff going on. I mean, they can become completely still, but often uh, we're aware of many changes going on. And when we really investigate, I think we will find that there's nothing that isn't subject to change. Um, even if you reach a state that is nearly permanent, they're nearly unchanging, I should say. There are mental states of concentration that are very, very still. But even those are conditioned because you had to get into them and you'll eventually have to get out in order to you know, eat, sleep, those kinds of things. So um, yeah, what is not really subject to change, to slipping away, to falling apart, to decaying? to dissolving even moment by moment. What is there to hold on to in the face of that? What is there to hold on to? So um, Dhammapada 113 says, better than 100 years lived without seeing the arising and passing of things is one day lived seeing their arising and passing. So that's pretty important. Other teachings say that observing the impermanence of phenomena, um, of experiences in our practice, is sufficient for full liberation. You, you don't have to master all the other teachings if you completely master impermanence. That's a long way to get all the way to the bottom of impermanence, but it's pretty good. That can get our attention because I think everybody can see impermanence at the top level. So if you just keep going with that, it will go all the way to liberation. It's pretty good. So given that change is inevitable, um, it must be our relationship to change that is what brings suffering or happiness. That must be when the Buddha was seeking that which is uh, unaging, unailing, deathless. Um, he was looking for something uh, that didn't change, but what it turns out is the way to get there is to change our relationship to change, if that makes sense. So there's, there are a number of um, healthy relationships to change that we can have, and I'll, there's a lot, but I'll just talk about three of them, um, you know, ways that we can work with this inevitable changingness. So one of them is kind of fun. It's curiosity or a sense of possibility. Uh, in change. And this isn't always easy if the change is uh, undesired or something, but even then it can be interesting, you know, like, huh, I wonder what's going to happen with that. Once on a retreat, I saw um, someone wearing a t-shirt that said, impermanence makes everything possible. And I thought, yeah, 
It's true. Um, if things couldn't change, how could anything new be possible? So yeah, it matters that things can change. Um, it might be true that impermanence makes everything possible. It's interesting that the Buddha also, at one point, he, he held up a, um, his finger with a little bit of dirt under it. He scooped up some dirt and he said, if there were even this much material in the universe that were permanent, awakening would not be possible. But because there is nothing in the universe, not even fingernail worth of dust that is permanent, awakening is possible. So that's worth reflecting on. We may not have the full story on that, but ponder that. <laughs> it's, it's important. So curiosity or a sense of possibility. And then another one um, that I think many of us have experienced in our own practice is a softening of the heart. You know, the fragility and the vulnerabilities of human life are so evident, you know, moment to moment and certainly year to year that they can evoke love, compassion, uh, generally a softening of the heart. Um, and these are beautiful qualities, you know, to um, bring these things forth. Impermanence can evoke some of the most beautiful uh, changes in people. Often, you know, after various natural disasters or uh, climate events of certain kinds, you'll see just incredible acts of love and compassion that, you know, it's it's not that people weren't doing them at other times, but they, they really come forth. Sometimes people surprise themselves with what they're able to do. Of course, it does matter that your heart has been kind of primed for that, but I'm always inspired by um, the stories that come out after these um, disruptions that happen in, in life and in society. So much goodness can come. We have to train ourselves for it, but it can be a real trigger for that. So um, I would say that these kinds of actions and abilities, um, very beautiful, are uh, not liberating in and of themselves. They would also need some kind of wisdom or at least the uh, fourth Brahmavihara of equanimity is also important because if we have only the love and the compassion, beautiful as they are, we can be um, injured by that. We can be sort of too open or um, uh, too naive or somehow we can get overwhelmed by the suffering of the world. And we see that also, right? People who really um, give themselves over sometimes can fall into compassion fatigue or other things. And we know how challenging that can be. So, um, the, the heart quality I'm emphasizing today is equanimity in the face of change. And that is an excellent um, balance for these beautiful softening of the heart qualities that come out. Um, this is a, a, from the teacher George Straffin. Usually we are so caught up in trying to make pleasant experiences arise and stay or trying to make unpleasant experiences disappear or we get lost in the details of mental and emotional dramas that we don't notice the basic characteristic all experiences and things share, their impermanence. Let the implications of the fact that everything is changing sink deep into your bones. Know in mind, heart, and body. Live that knowing in the choices of life day to day. Let it remind you that this fleeting world is precious, 
that we have some choices within a world of momentum and constraint, and those choices matter. They lead to suffering and regret or to freedom and peace. So this is another implication of impermanence is that it can open the heart and help us um, make choices that lead us in the direction of freedom and peace. Remember, um, impermanence makes everything possible. So it's a good thing that our mental patterns and our um, habits and our ways of being are also impermanent, changeable, able to be what? Developed, able to be cultivated in a good direction. If there were anything in your character that could not be changed, you could not awaken. That's also a teaching on not self, by the way. <laughs> so then um, the third skillful relationship to change is one of equanimity or wisdom. So knowing that change is, is inevitable can actually bring about relief and ease and some ability not to get caught up in things. There's a very uh, famous um, Pali verse that's um, in the Pali canon, but it's also used in the modern world in Thailand at funerals. Um, it's often chanted when someone has died. <clears throat> I'll say it in Pali and then I'll give you two translations of it. You've probably heard it because um, the first line is well known. Anicca vata sankara upadavaya damino upachitava nirochanti and it means impermanent truly are compounded things by nature arising and passing away. If they arise and are extinguished, their eradication brings happiness. Here's another translation. All conditioned things are impermanent. They are of the nature to arise and pass away. Those who understand this truth deeply will live happily. So that's pretty good. It doesn't sound immediately obvious, but that's getting into the subtlety of the Buddhist teachings, so that we can be happy to see things um, arising and vanishing, knowing that they're being liberated in our awareness. This is a fairly um, powerful stage of practice, but there's a way in which um, just seeing things can help them fade and dissolve. And there's an immediate easing when that happens. We're not going for nothing, nothingness. That's not the aim. But um, if you can find joy in things arising and passing away, that would be pretty good, wouldn't it, given that everything arises and passes away? This verse, by the way, is um, on a bench at the Insight Retreat Center that was, um, uh, it was placed there in honor of a good friend of mine, uh, Victor Medina, who died, I don't know, about six years ago. And um, this uh, verse was very meaningful to him. And so it's, I always think of him and think of it when I see that bench at IRC. So how do we do this practically? We'll just wind up with um, a sense of, you know, how would I gain some of these wise perspectives on change? such as curiosity, a softening of the heart, or equanimity and wisdom. And I think the number one that I like to teach, there are many, of course, but I like to teach mindfulness of the body. Uh, it's all right here in the body. And I think if we 
try to, you know, somehow get awakened without bringing our body along. We're, we're missing a lot. And so um, after the Buddha died, this is even confirmed in the teachings, um, after the Buddha died, his cousin and attendant, Ananda, who was um, so dearly, you know, devoted to him, he was mourning deeply because he wasn't fully awakened. Um, and he was, you know, so sad that, the, that his cousin and the Buddha were dying and weren't going to be able to teach anymore. And so he um, recorded in the verses of the elder monks, the Teragata, during um, Ananda's words, for one whose friend has passed away, one whose teacher is gone for good, there is no friend that can compare with mindfulness of the body. So there you go, it was said by Ananda. And if mindfulness of the body is good enough when the medicine, when the Buddha dies, it's good enough for a lot of things. So let equanimity be your deepest friend as we navigate this changing world. And today we've looked at, talked about the wisdom of impermanence, the fragility of the body, its inevitable death and the possibility of the heart quality of equanimity in the face of all this change. So these are the thoughts that I wanted to share. And I, I thought we would just have an opportunity for reflection in the, in the group today. Um, if anyone has comments or questions or things to share that were sparked by anything in the talk. Yeah, Abby. I have a question. Because mm -hmm. the way you were just talking about it, yeah, I think you just said that, you know, I'm paraphrasing now, but basically sort of if you appreciate or recognize um, impermanence, like there's a spark of happiness or there's some happiness from doing that. And I'm wondering, so, because until you said that, that hadn't even occurred to me. I've always thought that impermanence is important because our appreciation for impermanence is important basically so you don't get blindsided by change and that you can kind of ride, that you can ride it and that you have something internal, um, you know, equanimity or, you know, mindfulness of the body, breathing, feeling calm and happy and what, regardless of what's going on around you. Mm -hmm. um, so I would have, if, if you had given me a quiz 10 minutes ago, I would have said something completely different than what you just said. And I'm wondering like, just how those things might fit together. And just- Well, I think both are true. Um, you've pointed to the wisdom of, <clears throat> you know, of not being blindsided, as you said, by, by inevitable change. And we always, you know, we, of course we are <laughs> day by day, we're surprised that certain things happen, um, but that's, that's a big part of it. But in and of itself, um, knowing that things change, uh, there is a certain uh, joy and happiness in that. It's actually named in the suttas as the happiness of renunciation, um, is knowing that things will change in, in and of itself brings that joy. And then, yes, there is um, a stage of practice where um, 
seeing things arise and immediate and immediately fall away from the mind. This is the lotus image where there's you know, the water and it just falls away. Uh, there's a real peace in that. Maybe joy was the wrong word because it's not like a delighted joy. It's a different kind of joy, but it is um, uh, a certain amount of peace comes when we see that the mind is has a Teflon surface on it, which it, it can occasionally in our, in our regular practice. Thanks, good question. Karen. Hi, thank you for your talk. Um, one of the ways I'm experiencing impermanence is changes in the relationships I have in the world and the way stress is affecting people in my life and, and I'm finding it difficult to adapt because I expect a mutuality of relating and with people I've had as friends for a long time, a certain level of skillfulness and communication and when those seem to go away, I'm confused and kind of um, find myself tightening up instead of um, staying as connected. And I liked when you said um, equanimity and wisdom, but I'm just finding this state really confusing. Yeah. Yeah. Our relationships are areas where we, also subtly impart permanence to them, don't we? So, you know, we have our favorite cup and then one day it breaks and maybe that's not such a big tragedy, but it's somewhere in the back of our mind, we had been imagining this cup would just keep going uh, and then it didn't. And, and it's even harder in the case of relationships because we're so, um, you know, so much more deeply attached to people in a sense, but we do the same thing as we have um, a certain way of relating for a while and then inevitably, we, of course, we know intellectually that it will change at, at the very least when one of you dies, but potentially before that, if the person, you know, you know, things change. And, and so we can get um, surprised by that. And if it's a change in a direction that used to, it used to be more pleasant, and now it's become more unpleasant in certain ways, or then of course, we'll, we'll feel some reaction to that. But I'm going to make the analogy to a physical object. It's really no different than the, the change in something physical that is breaking or wearing out. Not that relationships only go in the direction of breaking or wearing out. They have the nice quality that sometimes they build up or grow or deepen. Um, but they have the potential to go both ways. And um, yeah, so maybe this is more a time for the softening of the heart and you know, the response of caring for yourself in a change of a relationship. Oh, you know, this, this just isn't the same as it used to be. And maybe caring for the other person. They may be going through something that is making them less skillful in the way they can relate. Um, not always easy, but um, that's a possibility. And of course, yeah, people do change. And in the end, we have to let them change. Yeah. Does that help a little bit? Yeah, thank you. Yeah.
Anything else on your mind today? Well, perhaps we can wind up then. And um, we'll be back again tomorrow. Once again, uh, for those a few of you who are new, so I'll just repeat that um, we'll be doing this every day this week. And um, my general idea was that each day we would have a kind of a wisdom quality and a heart quality coming together uh, to uh, help commemorate this year of strangeness and change and challenges in the societal um, health and environmental spheres. And um, so we'll be back tomorrow and probably we'll alternate uh, small groups and large groups. So tomorrow again, we'll have some small groups and I look forward to seeing you then. Meanwhile, have a great day. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you. Yep. Thank you, Ken. Thank you.